is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa Podcast. We're taking a few days off, but after Independence Day weekend, riddled with gun violence that left many Americans reeling, we wanted to bring you a best-of interview with David Hogg, a prominent gun safety activist and survivor of the 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida. He's also the founder of March for Our Lives after the back-to-back tragedies in Buffalo, New York and Uvalde, Texas. March for Our Lives held marches across the country on June 11th that saw hundreds of thousands of supporters turn out, hopeful that their voices would be heard and that America would finally put an end to the senseless scourge of gun violence. But here we are, folks, not a month later, and the mass shooting at a 4th of July parade in Highland Park, Illinois, was just one of 11 mass shooting incidents across the country over the weekend. It was reported by the Gun Violence Archive that between Friday and Monday, I mean, get a load of this, 220 people were shot and killed and 570 people were injured. And though President Biden signed the most significant bipartisan federal gun legislation in nearly a decade in late June, a week later, the rogue Supreme Court undercut any value the bill might have had when it shot down a 100-year-old concealed carry law in New York State that will essentially upgrade the Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, to a consecrated right on par with the First Amendment protections like freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Going against previous court precedents and any and all logic, the Supreme Court has chosen to interpret the Constitution, a document that was written more than 230 years ago by a small group of white landowners in the most narrow and absurd way possible. Those founding fathers, most whom were slave owners, could never have foreseen an American with a black president or an America where AR-15s are bought and sold like fucking candy. If candy ripped your face off and tore your body into shreds. But that's where we are today, being held hostage by an ignorant few who refuse to change bad policy to protect the lives of the many. David Hogg wrote on Twitter Wednesday, There have been several dozen terrorist attacks in the past few months waged against us in the form of mass shootings. This is not an issue of mental health. This is a major national security issue representing a credible and serious threat to the American people. Hogg knows what he's talking about, and though just about nothing has changed since our interview, I have hope that this leadership and relentless activism will soon help to enact safe gun laws and save lives. So let's go now to that conversation with David Hogg. So David, last fall, you released a documentary called Us Kids that follows you and fellow youth activists as you launched the March for Our Lives movement in 2018. The world, though, was a completely, completely different place at the time. Now, watching the movie today, what's changed and what has remained the same? Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Michael. I think what's some of the main things that have changed is we've seen major, uh, comparatively major and significant legislative change at the state level of many uh, even Republican legislators uh, enacting common sense gun laws and laws that would stop someone like the shooter at my high school who made threats beforehand from being able to, to have a gun because it it, uh, it would be able to be taken away through an, what's known as an extremist protection order that basically is a court order to take someone's gun away if they're a danger to themselves or other others with a right to due process and counsel and all that good stuff. So I think that is significant because previously it was just don't do anything because uh, one inch is a mile, you know, as they always say or whatever. But a lot of these states have started to act I think Congress has actually been um, a lot better in that they've actually started to fund gun violence research and a number of other laws have been, other bills have been advanced through the House. Unfortunately, they're still in the Senate because of the, the filibuster. But I think I think we've seen a lot of public opinion change and we've seen a lot of legislative action at the state level since 2018 when the shooting happened at my high school. And But one of the things, uh, unfortunately, that has stayed the same is this... Uh, 
I guess this subversion of our representative democracy and that the majority, the vast majority of Americans support things like universal background checks and other common sense gun laws. However, unfortunately, uh, the Senate is not necessarily representative of the majority of Americans because of the way it's set up. So that's kind of what's, I guess you could say, stayed the same. The NRA has been significantly weakened in part because of a a, uh, fun little uh, letter that we wrote to the New York Attorney General uh, because of some of our wonderful uh, tax lawyers on our board that we work with that has basically resulted in a major inquiry that uh, in part has led to them talking about filing for bankruptcy and various other things. Well, so if you would for my listeners, if you can, first of all, where are you now? You're what, about 20 years yeah, old Yeah, I just now? turned 21. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. You had your first, yeah, you had your first legal drink. You know what they say now. Now you can get rid of your fake ID. Yeah. You get to be a totally different person. Yes. Right. Now, most importantly, and you're in you're in college. Yes. You're attending Harvard. Yes. How do you? How are you enjoying Boston? Um, well, I mean, I, I've been at home for a couple bit for the past year, basically, because they moved everybody off of campus uh, for the most part. But you know, uh, w- what I will say is as is the case with many cities in the United States, having grown up in the sun, in the sun belt most of my life. I love the people that live in these cities, but I hate the climate a lot of the time. You know, it's- a, Yeah, I can, I can understand Going that. from basically a, a subtropical environment in Florida to Cambridge, Massachusetts has been quite the uh, environmental shock. But it's, uh, it, it's, other than that, it's been great. Have you gone back to um, your, your um, former high school? In Parkland? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've gone back occasionally, but not not in the past year because of the pandemic and everything. But yeah, it's uh, what I will say, Michael, is the entire community, understandably, is permanently changed, um, as is every community that is impacted by gun violence. And even even more so for the ones that face the most, the, the largest amounts of injustice uh, and experience gun violence on a daily basis. You know, it's it's like they're having mass shootings happening every week year after year, uh, decade after decade, and very little has been done, unfortunately. Yeah, it is terrible. But yesterday, the Florida legislature passed HB1, Ron DeSantis' anti-protest bill. Now, in response, March for Their Lives wrote, this bill emboldens white supremacists and threatens our right to protest. If you would explain to my listeners, first of all, what is the HB1 and what was DeSantis's role in advocating for the legislation? Basically, HB1 is a bill that uh, was introduced uh, pretty much entirely as a result of the Black Lives Matter protests that happened in Florida. And it essentially makes, I, I wouldn't say that it takes away your First Amendment right completely, but it takes away a very large amount of it and that there are certain technicalities that are within the bill that make uh, individuals at the protests, organizers, and other people legally responsible for any, inj- you know, I, I think like kind of any injuries or various other things that happen there that make it very difficult for the organizers to actually do their jobs. And basically what it ends up resulting in is that uh, it lowers the bar for what legally can be considered a criminal behavior at these protests um, for people, for the cops basically to shut it down, even if it is a entirely peaceful protest in the first place. So and I could go even further into the details, but I, I, I won't bore the listeners that much with the, with it. But uh, what I will say is it's a very bad bill in that, as with many other of these laws throughout the United States that have been introduced, especially by Ron DeSantis, who, in my opinion, is going to be has a very good sizable chance of becoming Trump 2.0 horrifically uh, if nothing is done. Basically, it, it could set a precedent, although I, it, it depends on whether or not, you know, it actually passes the courts, which would be even more terrifying. I know Merrick Garland and the uh, the Department of Justice's uh, Civil Rights Division is going to have a field day um, with this bill, I'm sure. But, yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, to me, it sounds like this bill would have been effective in stopping Donald Trump's January 6th insurrection. On top of that, it sounds to me like it would have also stopped many of his, we'll call it super spreader events or his campaign rallies, whereby he was actually promoting violence. Now, he, of course, did say that he would pay the legal fees if, in fact, some of his supporters beat up some of the, we'll call them anti-Trumpers. Of course, I know firsthand that Donald Trump 
is, is lying about that. He wouldn't even pay the legal bills that he's obligated to pay. Has basically stiffed every law firm in the planet. And so that didn't really mean anything. But it seems to me that they would be able to take this HB1 bill and really sort of expand it, which is why I think you appropriately said that the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division will have a field day. I, I mean, I imagine I haven't gone to law school yet, so <laughs> don't take my word on that. But, I, you know, I, 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 I hear what you're saying around the insurrection bit. And that's actually a lot of the justification that Florida Republicans have been using for the bill, acting as if they introduced it after Donald Trump had the, you know, took part in helping uh, lead the insurrection. But that's not the actual reason why the bill was created in the first place. And I could understand how one could see this bill possibly being used, uh, you know, to stop a similar type of insurrection happening at the Florida State Capitol. But unfortunately, I think that even if even if the bill was to be passed in the first place, it wouldn't be used in that way, because I think what we saw on January 6th is that is a prime example of the two systems of justice that we have in this country and that you were significantly better off to be a rich man like Donald Trump and be guilty than to be a poor man and be completely innocent. And what I mean by that as well is that I think what we saw in the insurrection is that that wasn't an issue of whether or not there were laws to stop what had happened. That was an issue of enforcement and a double standard, a white supremacist double standard, in my opinion, within our justice system. One that privileges white supremacists to be able to carry out incredibly violent actions like they did, but criminalizes black and brown Americans simply for existing a lot of the time, right? Yeah, I, yes, I totally, I totally agree with you, though I will tell you from personal experience, I was once considered to be a wealthy guy, uh, certainly not Trump-type money, but I was considered to be wealthy. When the system got their hands on me and gave me 48 hours to plead guilty— or they were going to file an 85-page indictment against me that was going to include my wife. That came out on a Friday at 5.30 p.m., requiring me to plead guilty on Monday. There's nothing that you can do. And it would make no difference whether you're Donald Trump, whether you're Michael Cohen, or Jeff Bezos, for that matter. When the government wants to put the full, the full force on you, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. And... I can only imagine how frustrated those that have absolutely no money and some who have limited education. How do you stand against a system that you're right is so double standard? I don't know the answer. Right. Right. I mean, you have the privilege of having gone to law school and being a lawyer in the first place. But, you know, most people don't have that privilege, not to mention the fact that I don't imagine that you had a, a public defender defending you, right? That had multiple other cases in their caseload that they didn't have time for in the first place. Not only did I not have a public defender, I had an individual who was the former head of the criminal division of the Southern District of New York representing me. And we got walked all over by a group of young prosecutors because the system was designed to do that. They're all predicated upon their 98% conviction. But I truly believe that the interest on having me pleading guilty, getting me out of town and into prison came from all the way from the top. And that's what happens when you have a president and you have a Justice Department that are one where a president weaponizes the Justice Department using using a, I hate to say it, a feeble-minded attorney general who has ambitions very different than what the job of attorney general is supposed to yeah. be. Using that power against a citizen, but not just once, but twice. Because let's not forget when I was remanded back to prison, the second time, because I refused to waive my First Amendment constitutional right and, and not publish a book that Donald Trump deemed to be critical of him. So, you know, that's unfortunately what happened. Yeah, happens. I mean, there's a whole conversation there that goes into the, uh, you know, some of the possible issues, regardless of whether you're left or right around the power of the executive, especially over the Department of Justice and the appointment of the, you know, the most powerful, per one of the most powerful people in the United States government who is supposed to self-police or not do anything about the president, um, which is the attorney general of the United States. I, I don't know necessarily what needs to be done about that, but I think there's certainly a conflict of interest there when it's uh, when they're appointed by a president 
and just expected not to uh, be corrupt in any way or act corrupted. Well, maybe the answer is we have to start being legally capable of holding an attorney general, holding a federal court judge, holding prosecutors responsible and liable for their actions, especially when they know that they're improper, right? Because right now they all have prosecutorial immunity. And so there's nothing that you can do. So they could shred your rights. They could, you know, high Brady material. They could do whatever they want. And they still fall under that um, that privilege, which to me is disgraceful. On top of that, I also don't believe that federal court judges should have lifetime appointments. I think that's a problem as well. And I believe the entire, entire justice system needs a complete overhaul, one that turns around and doesn't have favorites with white privilege, one that is fair and equal to all races, all religions, all creeds, all colors, all nationalities. And I believe that it's possible. When it'll happen, that I don't know. But I do want to ask you, in the past month, we've seen two major mass shootings, both in Atlanta and then again in Boulder. Now, these incidents in turn have spurred President Biden to take action on gun control at the federal level. While he can issue an executive order, the only way to create lasting and meaningful results is to obviously pass legislation. But we have an intransigent opposition in the GOP who refuse to pass any type of gun control. How do you think that we break the stalemate on this? Well, I think it's a, honestly, I think it's a case of figuring out how, hearing about how even Trump reacted after the Parkland shooting and the fear that it struck in him and the effect that it could have on his, at the time, what was his re, his uh, campaign that was and his re-election that was going to happen in, in the next two years. You know, I, I think for a lot of these people, unfortunately, in our political system in the United States, we've become so polarized that for many, lives no longer matter. The deaths of people that are completely preventable no longer matter. What matters to these people is whether or not they are in power and how they look. And because it, it is a system of political hacks that is run on fear and talking points. And the best way, unfortunately, the best way that we've found in order to uh, to get people to change is not to refer to their morals, because I, as a young person and my many young colleagues, we don't really believe that these people really care about these people dying in the first place. Or even if they do, they're not willing to do anything because it's not a direct threat to their reelection. So what we've done is basically completely uh, shifted this, the, uh, the original plan that many other groups have had that other people had had prior to Parkland, which was, you know, people really care about kids, uh, people in power really care about kids dying in their schools and communities on a daily basis, and they want to protect them and not guns. And frankly, what we've found as a generation is that that's just not the case at all. And the best way to do that is to basically scare, scare them um, that they're going to lose their election. Um, and make them afraid of the young people that are endangered by their inaction, not just in schools, but in you know communities across the country on a daily basis. So I think that's the way that we get them, and that's what we started to see. I mean, prior, even uh, even a couple of years ago, Democrats weren't really even talking about gun violence. It was just talk, talk about the Second Amendment and don't touch that issue. What we did in 2018 is we went across the country and we told Democrats, no, you need to make this an issue. And many of them won because of it. And we're going to continue doing that. And I think we've seen that from Biden, even in comparison to how Obama talked about gun violence. Right. So I think ultimately it's going to come down to hopefully breaking the filibuster, either uh, abolishing it, reforming it or making it so that those 60 or so individuals are somehow compelled to act. And that might be by making their lives an actual living hell and having a lot of uh, young people raise some hell around them. Um, in a in a peaceful and legal way, um, but one that threatens their future re-election. You know, I always thought that the GOP would have gotten, in Yiddish, we call it seichel, right? It means some brains, when it comes to gun reform, especially after Steve Scalise. And I remember when he was finally better and able to go back to, to the House, uh, to Congress, and he got this great standing ovation, which, of course, he was deservant of. And I really thought that that moment would have actually sparked something 
in these politicians, especially the GOP, who is so intertwined with the, with the NRA, I legitimately believed it. And then just as soon as he was back and he was okay, they forget about it. And then they move on to the next thing that Captain Chaos was doing, right? Or the next issue, or after the shooting that took place in, in Las Vegas, you know, from the hotel window. I really thought that something like this would spark some sort of change. And the change that I'm referring to is not the banning of firearms in the United States of America. That's never going to happen. But the actual documentation and the, the time period that people should be required to wait in order to get a firearm. And I tell this on this podcast, and I've done this several times. I used to have a license to carry a concealed firearm in the city of New York, which really was a privilege because there were so few of those licenses. And I remember the FBI had to do a threat assessment on me in order to determine for the NYPD uh, that was issuing the license as to why I even needed it. And because there was a series of death threats against me because of my relationship to Trump, the fact that I would walk to work because of the proximity of my home to the office and that there were so few routes that you can take and several other factors. But they did a very deep background check on me. Now, I'm a guy who has one speeding ticket my entire life, 1985, my sophomore year of college, going back to school. I was doing 20 miles an hour over the speed limit in New Jersey. Short of, of that, I've never had any... Yeah, it's always New Jersey, right? <laughs> so folks, be careful when you're driving through New Jersey. So for me, they did this massive deep dive into a guy who was a lawyer, working for the Trump Organization as an executive vice president and special counsel to Donald Trump. I have never had a legal issue. I don't have even a, a parking ticket. And yet they took months, and I mean months, before I was successful in getting the license. I do not understand why it is impossible to hold somebody back for a week or five days, or three days even, from being entitled to have a firearm. Maybe it's the heat of passion. Maybe it's some other issue that maybe they'll cool down or calm down, or maybe they'll change their thought pattern for whatever is going on, including, you know, suicide. I don't understand why they fight this. To me, it doesn't make any sense. Well, it's because it's fear-mongering. That's all it is. It's constant fear-mongering that if you give them if you give them an inch, they're going to take a mile and they're just going to keep going. So that's why, you know, even if they even even a majority of gun owners like my father, I grew up, shoot, you know, shooting guns with my dad, who was an FBI, a special agent in the FBI. And, uh, you know, have gun, you know, we my dad remains a gun owner and we've had guns in the house my entire life. I don't I don't understand it either, Michael, at all. And I, I wish that some Republicans, especially, you know, those 10 or so Republican senators that we need would, would come around on that and realize that even if it's just a small thing, of course, I'm, I'm always going to want more to stop as many of these as possible. But, you know, even if it's just that, you're totally right. I, I think I think there should be a 10 day waiting period or even a three day. Any waiting period at this point would be would be really helpful in that regard. And I, you know, I, I think it's interesting that to think about as well, like not only like the GOP NRA connection, which is, of course, very strong, but also their connections that they have to Russian intelligence that we that we know of, that we've seen repeatedly with their meetings that we've had that they've had in the relationship with the Trump organization that is, you know, uh, gone on for quite quite some time. It's it's truly remarkable to me. I mean, there's even some Russian oligarchs that they're connected to and stuff that I've tweeted out in Russian before, you know, on on Twitter. And it's it's uh it's horrific, but I, it makes sense though. If you if you, if you, if you think about it, Michael, from a, I, I mean, of course I'm just a, a, I'm just, I just turned 21. So take it as it is. But from my perspective, it makes sense from an international diplomacy and, you know, kind of information warfare standpoint. If, if you realize that the United States is too strong, because when you put pressure on it, it pushes back. The answer to it is not putting more pressure on it. 
It's basically don't put it on and let it to, you know, feed as much disinformation and division as you can into the country as possible. That had a country, which by the way, has more guns than people and convince them that we need to protect guns and not people in the first place. And that the real enemy is that person that's a different skin color than you or that person that's a different religion than you because they are using the what is one of the most powerful things in our country which is our diversity against us and trying to convince us that that is our greatest enemy when it's not and they're trying to get people to go out there and you know use mass shooters to basically use use their guns and be uh, effectively create these terrorist acts you know and I, as a final point uh, we hear all the time this argument around mental health. Oh, you know, the sh that people that say that the shooter at my high school is mentally ill. He was a he was known to be anti-Semitic and basically be a neo-Nazi. Anti-Semitism and intolerance and racism are not mental illnesses. Those are societal issues that we must confront head on as a country. And for the people that say that gun laws like aren't aren't going to end gun violence, I actually agree. We need to. I but it, I think it's a yes and question. We need to address how somebody gets a gun, but we also need to ask why people are picking up guns in the first place, why they live in a food desert, why they don't have the resources that they need, why the NYPD, in the case of many places that I've been in New York working with actual violence interrupters that you know go and stop shootings as they're happening, why the NYPD and the, the New York City government is more willing to invest millions of dollars into a police watchtower outside of a school and metal detectors and police officers than addressing the causes of that symptom that is violence, which is food insecurity and lack of resources, systemic racism, and all these other things that need to be addressed. Yep, you're right. And one issue that I think you forgot out of that long, long, unfortunate list of things is actually the type of gun. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a firm believer, and again, I've had multiple handguns. I've had a 45, I had a 40, I had a 9 millimeter, I had a 387. What I can tell you is that I've never had, and I've never wanted to have, is an AR-16. I just don't understand what you do with it. I've shot AR-16s before. I've shot fully automatic machine guns before. I don't understand why any civilian needs to have a firearm that unloads 100 rounds in under in under three seconds. I, I just don't understand it. So my feeling is like the AR-16, it's a military weapon. It belongs in the hands of military and experienced individuals for the same reason you wouldn't give somebody a hand grenade. You can't legally go buy a hand grenade. You can't legally go and buy a land-to-air, you know, missile launcher. You, you can't. You know, you just can't. So I don't understand why we've excluded these sort of um, weapons of serious, serious power and destruction. To me, I just don't. Yeah, get I mean, it. I, I think one of the one of the difficulties that they always bring up all the time is the issue of you know defining it and all these other things. But I I think even if we were just to start with a magazine ban to begin with, that would have a huge impact because the reason why you know so many of the, in so many of these mass shootings are able to kill so many people is because they have a you know, a they have 30 rounds they can go through in a matter of seconds instead of having to reload every you know 10 rounds to change out the uh, the magazine when they're just able to do that. And especially in addition to something like a bump stock, you know, it, it effectively becomes a machine gun in that instance. And it's it's truly horrific. And they, I agree. I, I think there needs to be a discussion around the types. And I I think this also speaks to the. Uh, you know, in the Second Amendment, they talk about having a well-regulated militia. 40,000 gun deaths and 100,000 gun deaths and injuries a year is not what a well-regulated militia looks like to me. Switzerland has one of, the highest gun, uh, one of the highest rates of gun ownership in the world. I can't tell you the last time that I heard about an instance of, of a, a mass shooting or gun, gun violence as a whole within Switzerland, right? Um, and it's because it's well-regulated. And, you know, I think obviously guns play a serious role in our history as a country and in our culture but there's no way that the, there's no reason that the cost of that has to be 40,000 people dying annually and 100,000 people getting killed and injured annually from that I, I just I don't believe that and I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican thing again my family has guns in the household I've grown up around guns I've shot guns I don't think that there's any reason why Democrats and Republicans shouldn't be able to agree on the baseline that this is necessary or this is the necessary cost of gun should be the cost of gun ownership in the United States. I think it's ridiculous.
Yeah, it should be bipartisan. But right now, David, we're seeing corporations wading into politics more and more, especially since the passage of regressive voter suppression legislation in Georgia. Now, as an example, the CEO of Coca-Cola came out against the bill and Major League Baseball then moved its all-star game. In Michigan, both General Motors and Ford CEOs signed a petition urging that similar legislation not be passed in that state. Do you see an opening for your movement to leverage this new spirit of corporate activism to forward at least your goals? Yeah, um, I, I think there has been. And, there, you know, it's, it's been on a smaller scale, but it's definitely happened. We've seen a number of business uh, businesses and business owners come forward, such as Tom Shoes, for example, coming out and supporting it. Even Levi's talking about universal background checks and things um, related to that. And, uh, you know, even Dick's Sporting Goods, for example, all of which, you know, have, have taken somewhat of a stand on this. And I know that I know for a fact from co- private conversations that I've had there that there are some major, major corporations throughout the United States, you know, in the S&P 500, et cetera, that uh, want to speak out on this. They're just not they don't feel like they have the coverage or the courage necessarily to do it just yet. Um, but I can tell you that there are a lot of them out there that do want to speak. It's just that sadly, 40, you know, gun violence in the United States is a uh, horrifically political issue, even though it shouldn't be, because it should be something that we should all be able to to uh, to agree on. So I think there's a big opportunity. But I would also say, Michael, that there's some I appreciate the activism from corporations and I see value in it right now. But I also think that's somewhat dangerous because the reason why they need to act in the first place is because we have a political system where voters in many ways are already suppressed, you know, where they don't have, where these corporations are the ones that necessarily have to come forward to push these elected officials instead of just the voters being able to do that themselves. And I just see that as wrong, right? I I appreciate that these companies are doing that, but it shouldn't be necessary in the first place. You're right. It should not be necessary. Unfortunately, our system right now is so divided Even if, in fact, the Democrats came up with the greatest plan for gun control, the GOP would have no choice but to fight it simply because they cannot allow the Democrats to have a win because then the midterm elections would ultimately suffer. And now it's all about party politics. I mean, you know, it's happening. Yeah. And it's it's really a crying shame because How as the citizens of this country do we advance if, in fact, you have both sides fighting one another because they cannot allow a victory to exist by the other side because they're more concerned about their political futures and they're more concerned about their party and the donations that come with it than they are about results? I mean, for God's sakes, the the GOP and and the Democrats can't even agree that all members of Congress should be wearing jackets when they're sitting inside the people's house, like Jim Jordan, right? I mean, they can't even agree on something as simple as that. And I cannot imagine that even again, if there was any legislation, including what they just put out in terms of the um, COVID relief package, they couldn't agree on that. And Americans are suffering. There was no money. They didn't have money for food, electricity, for heat, for anything. And they were still fighting, knowing that their own constituents are battling financial issues. And so they still had to figure out how to put a twist to it and how to fight it. I don't see how we move forward. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of what Lincoln said. You know, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And it's it's sadly a testament to the state of political hackery that we have in Washington, which I think there's always some element of. But it's just horrible because this shouldn't need to be I I shouldn't need to be on here right now. I shouldn't you know, I should be a college student, as with, you know, every other the thousands of other gun violence prevention activists that I know that are out there, you know, but because of our political system and this obsession with being more concerned over who wins versus, you know, you know, which party wins versus which is actually the best win for the American people uh, is what's it's what's gotten us to this point. And I think the the uh, 
the only solution to it is courageous leadership and understanding that sometimes the most important, the real testament of leadership at times is doing what's right, not necessarily what's popular at the time in your own district, for example. There's a, I, I would say that there is a lot more honor in having a legacy of being on the right side of history and losing with pride in that regard than being a, a political hack that continues to allow kids, moms, dads, sisters, and brothers to get killed every single day because you're afraid of the NRA. You're afraid of your of losing your election. And I, I don't know when it ends, but it has to. And I, I, I hope that it, it if I hope it doesn't get to this point, but if it if it does, you know, I think it might have to be up to my generation to end it. I mean, we we spend we've seen the GOP debating constantly immediately after Democrats won the House and Senate and the White House, all of this conversation about the national debt come back, but I didn't hear any of that when there was massive tax cuts, right? I didn't hear any of that when they were increasing military spending, when they were you know, increasing spending in general, but then when Democrats win, it's that conversation, right? But for both sides, frankly, when we want to go to a war, to, to have a war in Iraq or Afghanistan for what is effectively my entire life, and we spend nearly two trillion dollars there, we have no problem. To, it's amazing how the conversation around the national debt just disappears when that happens, because we are more willing as a country to kill people thousands of miles away than actually feed our own people. It's sad. And that's why I applaud all of these um, big corporations, uh, Major League Baseball for doing what they do, the NBA and so on. And if any of them are listening, good job. Keep it up and get your buddies to do the same. Now, uh, David, I want to talk for a moment about the rise of extremism under Donald Trump, because during his tenure, he normalized conspiracy by giving groups like QAnon space on his Twitter feed and in his and in his private conversation. They, in turn, seem to grow and metastasize. Now, how has their rise and the rise of groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys changed the contours of the gun control conversation? I, I mean, it, it, when we get so extreme, it's hard to even have a conversation because it, it's no longer around policy agreements. It's around disagreements over you know, I'm not going to have a conversation with somebody that doesn't think a certain group should exist because of their religion or because of their ethnicity or race. That those are just the those are non-starters, right? When we become this extreme, it, it makes it impossible to act in bipartisan ways. Because as a uh, as one of my favorite professors has uh, has said, and I mean, frankly, he's a he's kind of radical, but it's I, I think it's true. You know, throughout U.S. history, when you hear the word compromise, that means the white supremacists won. We can't compromise with these people because they are so far to the, uh, frankly, to the right, towards a, not even the right, but just also authoritarianism in general. We can't compromise with them because if they, uh, you know, to use a bit of their own argument against them, but really for real this time, if we give them an inch, they'll take a, a th not just a mile, but a thousand miles. You know, we can't. We can't just keep acting as if we can put this, uh, we can just keep fighting this fire that it, honestly, Michael, it really, it pisses me off a lot that I feel like Democrats for a long time have been acting as if, as if like playing against Donald Trump was a game of chess, right? Where it's, you're just moving your pawns and trying to get forward. Donald Trump wasn't playing a game of chess. He was, he already got checkmate because he is the product of a 50 year strategy that the Republican Party has benefited from, from history, starting with Barry Goldwater's campaign and onward. He, he already had checkmate. He was now flipping the board and Democrats still thought we were playing chess. And we still think, many of us still think we are. We are not safe right now. If you look at the history of failed coups and failed insurrections, there's typically another one that happens a couple of years later and it's not always unsuccessful. We need to be prepared for that. You know, David, let me ask you, David, let me ask you this question, right? Because, and I want my listeners to think about this as I'm asking you this question, because I'm really asking them the same question. Do you have, do you have any idea what the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers actually stand for in terms of what is their underlying purpose? What is their goals, right? They're an organization, whether 
by an LLC, a corporate, just a group of people that speak to one another on, you know, the WhatsApps or, you know, Twitter or wherever they, they meet. But what do they even stand for? Because most people will turn around and tell you, I have no freaking clue. I have no idea what they actually stand for. Well, obviously, they stand for white supremacy, right? But we know what they look like based upon their paramilitary gear and, you know, of course, their T-shirts that say shit like Oath Keepers on it, right? But what do they actually stand for? What are they trying to accomplish as an organization? I don't know if they would say this necessarily directly, and it's partly because it's their strategy. A lot of these white supremacist groups copy a strategy from a, a uh, I forget what book it is exactly. I think it's called like the Turner Diaries or something like that, where it's basically a, a fictional book about a white supremacist, like the creation of a white ethnic state within the United States. And a major premise in the book is that all these groups were heavily decentralized to stop the federal government from coming after them on conspiracy charges or anything like that. But I think one thing that you could say that they stand for in general is winning at all costs, no matter what. And immediately, you know, anytime that they, uh, yeah, it's basically it, winning at any cost for whatever their members support in the first place. Because I, I think it's much broader than just blatant white supremacy. It, it is, of course. But it's also a special type of militaristic authoritarianism that they're going after. That is that if they do not win, the cost of toleration, in their opinion, of a fear of a, quote, white genocide is so great that they must fight it at all costs, even if it means destroying our own country and democracy in the process. And what this speaks to more broadly, especially since I've studied and read a, a perhaps too much about uh, authoritarianism this year in some of my comparative politics classes, their playbook is very similar to how a lot of authoritarian governments are created, wherein there is a large amount of inequality that happens. In part, I would attribute it to, in the United States, Reaganomics and you know the power of compounding interest to hoard wealth within the upper echelons of society while starving other parts of it. But as a result of that, it, it comes down to you know white populism a lot of the time, or populism in general. On Frankly, it, you know, I don't want to, I wouldn't say it's both sides equally, but there is some element of that that happens and it's just a matter of which way it goes. On the right specifically though, it's a much more militaristic type of populism that is heavily uh, decentralized, but in those decentralized groups, very organized to win at you know, any cost whatsoever. And what it, what's scary, the scariest thing that I've learned in this past year, and this I learned this right before Trump's election and it terrified me, is that the way that a lot of these countries end up falling is that people like Donald Trump, who are political outsiders, come into power by using populism to basically go around all the institutions and go straight to the top with these big, broad claims that they're going to fix the system, they're going to drain the swamp, that they're going to get out all of the corrupt people in the country. Then they use that populism when they start getting negative press to say, oh, the elites are coming after me. They're trying to destroy me. You can't believe anything that you're reading. And then they use that to basically end up creating a crisis, which wherein they end up typically saying uh, that they end up declaring a military dictatorship or something like that because they say that uh, the elites are coming after them and now they need to stay in power. And that sounds eerily similar to what Trump did over those four years. Absolutely. You know, uh, David, in February, a video surfaced of Marjorie Taylor Greene harassing you in Washington, D.C., now, she referred to you as being like a trained dog. When you get followed by someone like that, who is obviously mentally unstable, does it make you uncomfortable or worse, fearful? What's insane is that she became a duly elected member of Congress. That, to me, is insane. I wouldn't say it makes me fearful, per se. I've been followed by my, my own. <laughs> she is one of many videos or, or individuals that are out there that have followed me with a gun. Um, not to, not to play it up too much, but it's kind of, by that point, it was something that I was, I wouldn't say I was, I wouldn't say I was used to because you don't get used to something like that. And it was scary. And I, but more than anything, I was scared for my staff and friends that were next to me. You know, that's why I continued just walking and didn't feed into it because I was trying to, you know, I learned from my father, you know, having been at, you know, him being in the FBI and stuff about the power of de-escalation. Right. That's what I was trying to do was de-escalate the situation for someone that, in my view, clearly had something wrong and was armed at the time. And I was not going to feed into anything that they were saying and especially not give them an excuse to shoot me. 
And I wouldn't say it's a fear thing anymore at this point. To be frank with you, I, I think I've probably gotten, I, I wouldn't, I don't know if it's in the hundreds or maybe even thousands of death, of death threats at this point. And I, I don't mean to, you know, try to act dramatic or anything. That's just the truth. I've gotten so many photos of my, you know, me having my head cut off in the mail, dead animals, all of it, you know, like it's something that you don't really get used to, but it's when the Marjorie Taylor Greene stuff happened at that point, it was just, let's continue on and let's make sure that my staff and, and hopefully myself are not killed in this instance and let's get everyone to safety and, and, and do what's right here. But it, it's terrifying, but it just proves to me that my generation Actually, I don't think it's on my generation. I think it's on all of us. No matter how old or young we are, we need to act and look at ourselves in the mirror and and uh, and realize we got a serious problem in this country. Not just around gun violence, but around the the subversion of what is truth. That is the bedrock of democracy. That is what scares me. Well, let me say this to you: you you never get used to it. I've been getting them now for more than five years. You never get used to it. And all I would like to recommend to you, my young friend, is that you look to your left and you look to your right and never put yourself into a situation that if you were not, if you were not who you are, um, then you would have no fears and no concerns. If that means walking with three or four additional people, you walk with three or four additional people. If that means you don't walk through a, you know, um, a deserted street to get to wherever you're going that maybe a block or two you know quicker don't do it right. because you never get past it and obviously um you've seen enough in your in your young life already to last five lifetimes david let me ask you this then a couple of weeks ago a very spontaneous interaction over twitter between you and william legate led to you guys trying to start a progressive pillow company was this an attempt to give a financial middle finger to Mike Liddell and my pillow? What was the what was the genesis behind this? I'm gonna be careful with how I answer this because I'm not I'm not a lawyer, but I will say that I think part of it was to offer a market competitor to Mike Liddell's pillow that was a, a an alternative for people that I'm trying to be very careful in how I say this. That support appreciated appreciated the company the, the the pillow but didn't want but didn't appreciate his insanity and the person to whom he has now shown allegiance yes you to. can say that and a number of other things yeah, that actually he, i did that i would say he stands for <laughs> but i don't want to get sued so i'll leave it at that but yes it was in part to offer an al a market alternative to a a certain man's pillow and, you know, eventually what I kind of realized as we were working on it, you know, and it, it's still in progress, is that I, I just, my commitments to school were just too much at the time, uh, or, you know, remain too much at this time, because I, I had three research classes I'm taking this semester, and it ended up being a lot more than I thought it, you know, would have been. So Will is still continuing the company at this point. It's not affiliated with Mar it is not affiliated with March for Our Lives in any way, shape, or form. It's just my own personal thing that I did, you know, spontaneously over Twitter. Um, and it is still happening. However, I have resigned from the company um, and don't have any equity or control over it whatsoever anymore. Though Will and I remain, you know, we remain friends and we don't there was absolutely the reason for my departure lies solely with me. It, it didn't have anything to do with Will whatsoever. Well, let me ask you this then. For many progressives, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were not their first choice, right? Many just simply held their nose and voted anyway uh, out of necessity in, for obvious reasons to rid the country of Donald Trump. Now, this administrator, though, has surprised a lot of people in its boldness to act on issues immediately. If you were to issue Biden a report card, what would the grades be and why? That's a good question. Um, you know what? It's, a, it's probably too broad of a question to ask, so I'll just chop it down really, really quick. On the economy, A, B, C, D, or F. On the economy, wow. That's a, a definitely, I would say an A, <laughs> at least on the economy. And the, I, I mean, gun, gun control. Gun control. Gun control. If Donald Trump is an F minus, I would give Biden a, 
Probably a B, maybe, maybe a B minus. Uh-huh. And, and what about and what about the topic that I've become very involved with prison reform? Honestly, I'm not I'm not nearly as involved with it as you are or, or, or a number of other progressives are. From my understanding of it, he hasn't necessarily acted quickly enough on it. But I, I will say there are some serious, serious, you know, I'm very disappointed to see um, the continuation in some ways of Trump era policies at the border and migrant detention centers that are, in my opinion, horrific and xenophobic. And it's more than inhumane. It's 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 just horrible. Right? I can't even think of the word. Let me ask. Let me ask you this way. You personally met Joe Biden after a gun violence prevention forum in Las Vegas. Do you have a personal relationship with the president now? And have they brought your group into the conversation around gun control at all since Atlanta or Bold and Boulder? I know that they're fit. So I, I do not have a personal relationship with uh, President Biden. Um, sounds crazy I'd saying that considering where we were six months ago. But... Yeah, so I, I don't have a personal relationship with President Biden, um, although I would I, I know he's a very busy person in the first place. But if he if he ever wanted to, uh, you know, hear what my thoughts or March for Our Lives thoughts even more on, on gun violence prevention, we'd be more than willing to take that phone call. But I would say, you know, and he, on that topic as well, he has been in con not not him personally, but the administration at times has been in contact um, and continues to work with March for Our Lives. You know, it's politics. It's a game of inside outside. You know, we're trying to make things happen um, and do the internal politics while also keeping the pressure on from the outside. Because, you know, he recently, you know, put down the idea of creating a, a national director of gun violence prevention and just basically pushed it off to, to the Republicans in Congress. Um, and we don't think that's enough. We really think that we need someone similar to the the climate person that he has, but for gun violence prevention to report directly to him on a on a systemic public health issue that is killing, you know, killing and injuring over 100,000 Americans annually. You know, I ask you that question, David, because I remember when a staffer from the Trump administration called you soon after the Parkland shooting and actually invited you to a listening session. Now, you refused, concerned that Trump would merely be using you as a prop to show that he actually cared, which is absolutely untrue, right? Do you remember what you said to the staffer on the phone before you hung up on them? Because it's a pretty powerful statement that you made in refusing to go and to see the president, to speak to his administration, and to join in that listening session. Wait, did you hear me when that call happened? Were you there? I was not there. That would have been a really interesting story to hear what happened after that. Basically what I said you know, it was a couple of years ago, but to give you a brief summary of what I said, it was it was essentially that at the time, you know, it was shortly after the shooting. And from my understanding of it, it was just a listening session was like the bare minimum. I thought it was just going to be, by you know, a listening session with Donald, Donald J. Trump, I imagined was going to be a lot more like a, you know, a talking points yelling session about, you know, a random stream of consciousness as he normally monologues and wasn't actually going to be him listening in, in any way, shape or form about what we actually wanted more than anything. We don't need to listen anymore. We've seen for over, you know, half a century, the cost of gun violence in the United States. We don't need listening. We need action. We don't need debates or, or talking heads for that matter. We need leaders with actual courage to do what is right, not necessarily what is going to win them the election. At the time. So what I what I said to him or not him, what I said to the person that was on the phone, which I believe was a woman, was essentially Donald Trump. If Donald Trump wants a listening session, he needs to listen to the screams of our children and the screams of our, our parents and the adults and, you know, the screams of American citizens from around the country that are dying from gun violence on a daily basis, because this isn't something that needs a fucking listening session. This is something that needs action. And I didn't say it in that colorful Well, language. just in case, well, you should have, you should have, David, but just in case you were wondering how that conversation was going to go, here's how it was going to go. He would start out by saying, David, 
Am I not the greatest? Did you see the crowds that came during my inauguration? It was the biggest ever. We won by a landslide. People love us. My brand has never been hotter. It's too bad that I gave up my company in order to be president. Blah, blah, blah. My golf courses are the greatest. I'm the greatest. And I believe in the Second Amendment. My kids shoot. They shoot animals in Africa. They shoot animals in Tanzania. They shoot everything that's known there. And I'm sorry, uh, you know, I know you went through a lot, but most importantly, what I'm going to do for you, I'm going to let you play golf at any of my clubs and eat whatever you want for that one day. Not more than one day, but one day. Is that good with you? And that's how the that's how it would have been. It would have been all about him because it's right. always all about him. And it's not about the issue. It's not about the lives lost. It's not about the sorrow or the PTSD that people like yourself deal yeah. with every single day. People like I who deal with every day as a result of incarceration. He doesn't give a shit about any of that. And the more that people start to express that to their friends and their neighbors who are supporting Trump for whatever the crazy reason that they have in their head for doing so, it's going to be our job in order to express the truth, truth to power, which is something that I've been doing basically since the day that I got out. I do want to ask you this, though, as we're beginning to wind down the hour. On April 11th, you tweeted in the following, I quote, the school security industrial complex has grown into a billion dollar industry because we live in a country that would rather profit from the symptoms of our inaction than address the causes of gun violence. This is something that you had just brought up. Now, if you can discuss with me what spurred you to write this about the school security industry on that specific day. I've just been thinking about it for a long time and how in the United States, we, 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 we love to build systems that are inherently reactionary and incredibly costly because they are the most profitable instead of addressing the actual symptoms of what are causing those things in the first place. And I, I was thinking a lot about the idea of bulletproof backpacks and the experiences that I've had, especially in many you know, schools, even in New York City, uh, with people I've worked with like Erica Ford in uh, Jamaica, Queens, and their group Life Camp um, that work with mentoring youth with community members and a restorative justice process to help mentor young people and get them, you know, on a, get them the resources that frankly all of them should have to succeed. And thinking about how there was one experience I had, Michael, where I walked in, we were, we were trying to mentor this young, this young teenager. And I walked into this middle school in Jamaica, Queens. And, you know, we go, it, it, it essentially looks like a prison. There's metal detectors and within the community itself, you know, there is an actual police watchtower that is looking over all the kids. But my friend Erica is telling me about how they're struggling to get the proper funding that they need for their program that is a violence intervention program and how much that one police tower costs and how we from that police tower, from the uh, metal detectors and everything, in many ways, in my opinion, whether intentionally or not, we're conditioning kids to go to prison. Because the school, the school to prison yeah. pipeline, right? We would rather arrest children for stealing because they are starving than give them the resources that they need to succeed in the first place. And that is, that, you know, David, yeah. when I when I saw that tweet, it it bothered me. I have to be honest with you, not in a negative way to you, but it bothered me in a human way because, and I've been waiting for this day to interview, to ask you this question. Does that terrible day in Parkland, Florida, haunt you in your dreams or when you're sitting in your room in a state of relaxation? Does it, does it haunt you? Because that's what I felt that tweet was really coming about because there are times that I put out a tweet and then I erase it because I wake up at three o'clock in the morning for some unknown reason, I see a light flashing in front of my eyes. And that's something that the uh, correctional officers do while you're, while you're sleeping. Every 15 minutes to 30 minutes, they flash like this million watt candle, um, candlelight flashlight right in your eyes while you're sleeping. And it almost makes you dream that you're being hit by a, by a train or that you're standing in the middle of traffic. And even the fact that now I've been out for you know, quite a few months 
while I'm sleeping, there are times that I just see a bright flash of light and I wake up with, with um, uh, my chest palpitating and my heartbeat really racing. Uh, and, you know, there's certain smells or, or even certain trees that I see when I walk in Central Park that remind me of Otisville. And, you know, nothing is more relaxing to me than walking through Central Park. And then I get these pangs of anxiety, this PTSD. And that's what I sort of felt that was happening in your life um, with that tweet. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it wasn't necessarily as dramatic. I've, I've learned the hard way um, to not tweet in those moments when you do wake up with, you know, night sweats or, you know, uh, for me, a lot of the time, I, a lot of the PTSD I actually have, of course, a lot of it comes from the shooting, but it also comes from the work that I did after the shooting. And it comes from what, what keeps me up at night just frankly just as much as the shooting is the experiences and people that i met after and what i mean by that is the stories of people you know i went to a juvenile correctional facility in los angeles when we were on tour and to to visit and learn about the connections to the prison industrial complex and i met a young woman in there that was about i think she was about 16 years old and she was telling me her her story of how she got there and how she was trying to work so hard to get a job and you know feed help feed her you know her family and stuff because her, she had parents that were working like multiple jobs and everything and how even though she had been working that hard and uh, you know she was trying to make sure that she didn't end up in prison like her mom previously did even though she she had been working that hard and her mom had her in prison literally when she was her mom was 16 years old she now was 16 and pregnant in the same prison where her mom was 16 and pregnant with her. That's not evidence of her failure. That's evidence of a systematic failure of our government to support the people and a purposeful failure in many ways of a white supremacist prison industrial complex that is not meant to heal people in any way, shape or form. It is meant to traumatize them and it is meant to keep them down in our society as much as possible. It, what horrifies me are you know the the armed the armed what what i didn't know at the time were white supremacists outside of an event that we had in dallas texas where they they were screaming at us shouting my name and i went out to went out there to them and actually had a conversation with them and you know of course there is a lot of privilege in that in itself and being able to have that conversation at all and i i didn't know that they were proud boys at the time but I talked to them and they ended up, you know, basically agreeing about, you know, not everything, but things like universal background checks and a number of other things and actually ended, ended up making, you know, one of them cry. And I realized that for, you know, a lot of these people, of course, later on, again, I, I, re I didn't know who they were at the time, but I realized for a lot of these people, even if there was a small part of it, how, how much damage the lack of a lack of education and understanding in this country does because what's driving so much of this fear around you know what we want to do about gun violence and other things isn't a genuine understanding of what's going on and that and that they believe they should be afraid it's a complete and total lack of understanding of why we believe what we do and that we are not crisis acting you know paid by some billionaire actors or something we are human beings that don't want our friends to be devalued over an AR-15 that believe that we should live in a country where no child in any community, black or brown or white or any any uh, any zip code and anyone with their, you know, no matter the number of figures in their parents' bank account, no child should have to live in fear of gun, no one should have to live in fear of gun violence because our founding fathers themselves talked about ensuring the domestic tranquility in the preamble, right? 100,000 Americans dying annually from gun violence and being injured annually from gun violence is not what ensuring the domestic tranquility looks like. And it's sure as hell not what a well-regulated militia looks like. That's what keeps me up at night. Well, David, let me say this to you. Um, you are certainly a brilliant young man. I wish you all the best in your future. You are the future of America because the way that you speak and your ideals are they're they're laudable and you should really take a second 
pat yourself on your own back every now and then. Yeah, do what Trump does, but not as often, right? I mean, he pats himself on the ass every day, right? Telling him how great he is all day long. What you're doing is really spectacular, not just, um, you know, the hard work that you're doing to, you know, finish school at Harvard, but also with your cause. So all the respect in the world to you on that. And the most important thing is, I hope you do go to law school, You'll be a great lawyer. Just here's the one piece of advice that I'm going to give to you as now a disbarred lawyer, right? Don't make the same mistake that I made, which is to, you know, start to work for an individual who lacks any morals, who has no loyalty whatsoever. Do not ever give your loyalty and your brains and your capabilities to somebody like Donald Trump because you are right. There will be a Donald Trump 2.0. I talk about it a lot on this podcast. Somebody richer, smarter, and more sinister, hard to believe, more sinister than Donald Trump. And so somebody, you know, like yourself, like me, could anybody can fall into it. Hell, 74 million people voted for this racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, Islamophobic, anti-Semitic asshole. Right. So that's my suggestion to you. I wish you all the best, um, you know, this year and every year and um, looking forward to finding out when you ultimately pass. The <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. David, you be well and stay strong, you my too. friend. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my Smile.